This is Anthony Arino, and you're listening to In the Arena. Every Sunday morning, I send out a newsletter. And if you're not registered for that newsletter, go to thesalesblog.com forward slash newsletter and sign up now. And I'm making a point of this because on most Sundays, I get an email back from my good friend, Bob Berg. And Bob always offers some insight or says something about the email that we end up having a conversation about because he's brilliant. So if you're a sales professional and if you want to bring your sales success to a new level, then join my friend, co-author of The Go-Giver, which sold 500,000 copies. Go-Givers sell more in the sales classic Endless Referrals, Bob Berg in Orlando, Florida, for his next Go-Giver Sales Academy. This is a live event. So at this live event, you're going to get Bob and his business partner, Kathy, and they're going to work on helping you achieve greater success on your own terms. This is what I like about this program. Each workshop is limited to only 20 people. So you're going to get Bob and Kathy's individual attention. You're going to get to strategize with them. You're going to get mentoring and you're going to do this in a mastermind environment with really highly successful people who are going to learn with you and share with you so you can learn and grow together. You're going to learn about communicating value. You're going to learn how to spread that value and touch more lives, and you're going to have a greater impact. You're also going to discover your natural attributes and advantages and how to use those. And as one final note, I'll add here, I'm adding this note because I read the book. Bob's got a tremendous framework called Objection Proof, and you're going to learn how to deal with every objection, get to its root, and work through it together with your customer, something I call resolving concerns. You're also going to leave with a 90-day action plan. You're going to move forward with clarity, with focus, aligned with your purpose, and you're going to go out and you're going to do great work because that's what The Go-Giver is all about. So if you want to join 20 people... When you join, there'll only be 19 spaces left. Go to thegogiver.com or email Kathy at thegogiver.com and join Bob Berg and Kathy for the Go-Giver Sales Academy. You'll find more information in the show notes and uh, do reach out and let me know when you get registered and tell Bob that I sent you. Unless you've read my work for a long time or unless you know me, then it's unlikely that you know that I have a deep interest in warfare and strategy, particularly fourth generation warfare or what's insurgency or counterinsurgency because I think it's such a lens on human behavior and how organizations uh, move and achieve their goals. And I got hooked on this idea of fourth generation warfare, and I've been to a number of conferences, and you meet different people than you meet in the world of business and sales and entrepreneurship and success when you go to an event like this, including generals and people who have had to succeed under really, really difficult conditions. And we think business is difficult, but for the military in whatever country you're listening to this, the the Decisions that they make are really life and death decisions where the stakes are the highest. So things like leadership are really magnified in a way that doesn't happen many other places. A friend of mine I met at a conference, his name is Pete Turner. We were actually introduced by another friend, uh, Zen pundit Mark Safransky, and I'll put the links to both of these guys in the show notes. But Pete has a really interesting story and an interesting background. Not only was he in the military during a time of conflict in the Middle East, but he was in the military in another role later as an advisor 
and I would call him a cultural expert. And there was this idea about human intelligence and the value of having people who understand the culture. And so Pete has very, very interesting experiences and a very, very distinct view about working inside situations like that. And they resemble so much consensus building and how we operate in organizations today that I think there are tremendous lessons here. So this is Pete Turner, a cultural expert who's been in very, very difficult situations and conflict zones in the arena to talk about being in the arena. Hey, Pete, how are you? Hey, man, I'm great. How are you? I'm wonderful. Where are you today? I am in lovely Benicia, California, where the weather is really perfect. I was going to say, where is that exactly? Yeah, it's uh, it's sort of by um, Oakland. That's actually halfway between Oakland and Napa, if you guys know where those places are. We, and know, it's, it's we know where that right is. It's right on the water, a little breeze, and it's it's what's everything is nice about the Bay Area, so it's perfect here. Everything's nice about the Bay Area, minus real estate prices in oh, some no, areas, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. You can't buy a house for anything less than half a million. And then when you do buy it for half a million, you have to knock it down and fix it because it's ruined. <laughs> Yeah, that's that market. We met through uh, Mark Safransky, mm-hmm. and and then we only met one time. We met at a conference. Do you remember the conference? Yeah, John Boyd conference. The in, John Boyd conference. Twelve. Is that right? Okay, so this is serious fourth generation warfare nerd stuff. I mean, this. So this is. I, I don't know how to describe this conference. So it's it's. Uh, military leaders and people who think and write and pundits who study insurgencies and counterinsurgencies and just some of the smartest thinking people who get together to talk about those issues. Is that a fair enough description? That sounds about right, yeah. Not sure how we ended up there, but there (laughs) there were smart people there. Yes. Your background is is interesting to me for a a number of reasons. One, and I think it's because decision-making has changed so much and consensus matters so much and culture matters so much and values matter so much in a business context. And the reason that the fourth-generation warfare idea appeals to me personally, and we'll talk about fourth and fifth so you can explain that to people. Sure. But it's because it's the application of strategy in a place where if things go right, you do well, and when things go wrong, they go very badly. So there's no place where the stakes are higher than in a military context like this. So that that part of it is, I think, where strategy becomes very, very real, and these ideas become amplified. I think that's a good word for it. So can you start by describing, let's start by just describing fourth generation warfare and what that means, and then you can educate me on fifth generation warfare and and explain that to me. Okay. Well, um, I'm going to try to capture what fourth generation warfare is. Uh, It's tough to capture in a short conversation, but primarily it's it's uh, asymmetric warfare. Vietnam was a fourth gen- generation fight where you know you can go out and you can have standard military patrols that you go out and you can win the fight every day militarily, but you ultimately lose the fight because of uh, a lack of initiative. You know, there's there's political elements in that where you know the enemy can run off into in, in modern cases into Pakistan or in the old days into Cambodia, and you can't just do a line on line, country to country kind of fight. We, we love that fight. That's the fight we're dying to have with China. 
but no one's going to fight us that way because we're really good at that fight. So uh, everybody fights us in other ways. And so fourth generation, it was sort of the transition from the World War II style of fighting, which you could look at as third generation, to this more modern style. It is as complex a problem set as you can come across. Yeah. Let me challenge that. I mean, wasn't the American Revolution, I mean, wasn't that fourth generation warfare in some in some regard because – we're not fighting the conventional war that was being fought at that time, and we're picking people off from behind trees and then running and uh, and outlasting. Sure. I, I think that the difference – and the fourth generation is not my super high specialty, but I think the difference is the modern weaponry that comes with the First World War and those things where yep. you've moved out of a horse-based fighting you know, weapons that are on wagons, and now you have mechanized, motorized things that move more quickly. And I think that's just the big difference. It, the the style of fighting is is often the same, but units pulling out and retreating across a river would stop you in older generations of fight. You know, I mean, that's how George Washington snuck away a number of times. You can't simply do that anymore. You can't just pull across a river. We'll go right after you. <laughs> not not with the modern technology that we have, especially planes, yeah. right? You're not going anywhere. Right. Yeah, exactly. So now tell me what fifth generation warfare is. And you've got, uh, this is a little deeper dive because there's five big pieces. So what is it? And what are those big pieces? Sure. Yeah. You know, to me, fifth generation warfare, and this is not a common term to hear. It's, it's, it's a developing and emerging thought. So I'll just call it modern conflict. There's five elements you have to master if you're going to try to win. And the first element, obviously, is militarily. You have to have imposed your will upon the military enemy. But after that, and this is the important part, you have to win politically, socially, culturally, by, with, and through religion. If you can't master those four elements in addition to military, it doesn't matter. You have those, All five of those things are critical. Military, political, social, cultural, religion. Yep. That's all five of that's them. Right. Okay, so then after military, that's when the real problem set starts, right? Yeah, you can't just, uh, you can't just end it with military because there's not a single commander that can say, okay, yeah, we quit and then get on to the rebuilding part. It's this, uh, you know, it's a three-dimensional uh, battlefield that constantly moves and the enemy blends into the populace. So at some point, uh, we're chasing 20, uh, my example is always this uh, district I worked in, there's 250,000 people in the district and 20 bad people that really needed to go away. But once you get down to a, a number, right around 20, it's, it's a tough to put the rest of those people in a grave or in a jail. And so you cause more ruckus chasing those guys. So you have to transition into those other four elements to really create the win that's going to be sustainable. Okay, so I, I did this intentionally. I didn't tell anybody who you are and why you should be talking about this because <laughs> I wanted to get us to this point first. So the, you've had deep experience in, in, in both of these areas. And so your experience is what's, what's super interesting. As we think about now decision-making in these structures where we're trying to impose change on people, but mm -hmm. there can be a resistance to this change that uh, of just very few people can keep that resistance alive for a very long time, and it can be very complicated to to unentrench that because there's political, social, cultural, and religious considerations here that are deeper than some guy comes in. And I, I think you taught me this line 
that the Taliban used to say, you have the watches, but we have the time. You know, mm-hmm. at, at some point you go home, we, we still live here. And I think from yeah. a business context, that makes sense. So talk about first your background. How did you end up in the role that you were in? And, and okay. how did you end up in Afghanistan, of all places? So I was in the Army. I graduated from college and didn't find a job. So I went and I joined the Army and I became a counterintelligence agent, which a counterintelligence agent is, is a spy. My job is to go out and create a human network. This will sound really salesy. So I have to go out and do cold calls and establish rapport and build trust. And I have to pitch people. There's actually We actually pitch in the counterintelligence world to get sources. And basically what I'm selling is me and my brand of safety and security, um, you know, trading some whiskey, trading some, you know, money, that kind of thing to get a person to work with me and talk with me. So, so those are the basics of, of what I do. And obviously that's very salesy. Um, I took that experience and recognized pretty early on that when we were in a conflict zone, so in Bosnia, for me, in this case, I was running around, I was learning a lot more valuable things when I didn't focus on threat and, and where are the bombs, because when you say those things, you sound and look like a spy, and, and it's a whole lot harder to get things done. But if you have just a candid conversation about people's lives, you'll find problems a lot more frequently that are manageable because people care about that more than they care about some bad guy that has bombs. You know, If they know that person, a sufficing behavior happens, and they're just trying to get by with that person in their life. They're not trying to get killed or anything else anymore. They're, they're going to draw back from that. So you're going to get a lot more mileage out of doing those things. So that turned into me becoming more of a cultural advisor to a commander where I would take what their mission was and study what they did and the impact on the people and vice versa, what the people were getting and thinking that they were getting from the Americans. And I came, became kind of this, uh, this conduit for explaining each side to the other, understanding the Afghan decision-making process and the military decision-making process. And it's, uh, if that sounds complex, it is. If it sounds dangerous, it is. Double that danger because when I get there to the Army, understand this, I'm not wanted there. I'm a guy with a beard. I make a lot of money. You don't know who I am. I'm not part of that unit. And those young 19-year-old infantry people, the commanders shouldn't trust me. So I've got to first win trust within my own people. And that's not easy. And then I got to go figure out how the heck I'm going to help them by talking to Afghans or Iraqis or wherever it's going to be. So my job became, again, trying to just to dance in both worlds where I like to say that people say, you know, put a mile or put on someone else's shoes and walk a mile in their shoes. I would do that. So I would have on my sandals and sit with the elders and learn what they did and how they made decisions. I then go put my boots on and go talk to commanders. But I'm talking from a point of view of a guy that just had his sandals on and then do the same thing with the elders where I have my boots outside their door and I'm like, okay, this is what the army is trying to do. And more often than not, the things that worked, the things that were most effective were right in front of our eyes. And it was all, get this, it was all trading tens for ones and ones for tens. Let me go back. I'll go back to tens for ones and ones for tens, but let me go back. So in Bosnia, you start to figure this out. And I'm just thinking about the pitch. So mm-hmm. I can help you, but... If you're discovered as helping me, you're you're probably going to be killed for cooperating with me at this level, which is not, by the way, the greatest value proposition in the world. (laughs) Just so you know, the the reward and the risk are sort of out of balance. So how do you manage that? Because they're they're really taking uh, an incredible risk to to participate in a conversation with you. You know, even 
more so in Iraq and Afghanistan. But when I'm, let me just back up and let me give you some of my world when I'm in Bosnia. So we go into this bar. It's reported to be very dangerous. Really had no Americans had been in it that we knew of, but we knew it was full of bad people. So we had to go there. And really, honestly, our hire was okay with us not going and probably would have preferred that. But, you know, that was where the work was going to be. So we went. And so part of my security plan was to have a hand grenade in my hand the whole time I was there with the pin pulled out. Now, you can pull a pin out of a hand grenade and nothing will happen because you have your hand on the trigger of the, of the grenade itself. And so at some point, so we go to this place, and that was the only defense we had because we're just too small of a team to defend a whole bar. So I'm sitting, you got to imagine, I'm sitting in a meeting, a sales meeting. I've got my hand on this thing. And at some point, I, and we're drinking. Um, what, and I, what a terrific combination, alcohol uh-huh. and a hand grenade. A high explosive hand grenade. And so pretty early on, I figured out that these guys were more interested in us being Americans and being there because we were being cool with them. We weren't being – it was my meeting, so I, I wasn't just – I wasn't being arrogant. I take off my gear. I sit there. I mean, I, granted, I have a hand grenade in my hand, and they don't know that. But I was able to put the pin back in, put that thing in my pocket, and get onto the real business of socializing and talking to these guys and just being someone that they can recognize as, as – Interesting, fascinating. That was my job, really, was to get them to look at that. And then come to find out that place wasn't as full of hooligans and ne'er-do-wells as we thought. I mean, there were bad people in there, but they were more trying to survive. They were more black marketers than anything else, just trying to figure, you know, when there are no jobs, people go what I call extra legal. And they'll sell gasoline. They'll sell whatever they can sell to feed their family. And I'm not worried about that in a conflict zone. I'm worried about people trying to harm us. So ultimately, what I'm trying to sell to those guys is, is, look, I will work with you. If you give me information, I'll compensate you for that information. But all I really want to know is if someone's going to harm someone else. If that's not going to happen, I'm not in your business about selling gas. I, I don't care if you're going to sell illegal coffee beans. And so I take a lot of the risk out where it's like, oh, you just don't want people to die. And I'm like, yeah, on either side, if something bad's going to happen, let me know that I can try to help prevent that from happening and you know, provide help where help is needed. So my pitch is a lot softer than it might seem because I'm not focused primarily on give me classified information so I can determine who the bad guy is. Like there's other people doing that kind of thing and that's great, but that didn't help me prevent me and my people from getting blown up, you know? What did most people want from you? I mean, what was it money? Was it, it's just because an economy like that in Bosnia at that time is, you know, a war zone? Is it just the, the basics of survival that they need? Yeah. When they wanted things, typically all they wanted was just a company of somebody interesting and different from them. That you know, they just wanted to hang out and drink with Pete and drink my you know, my teammates and because we, we were good guests and we you know, we would bring drink with us and everything and they would gladly drink that. But most of the time that's what they wanted was just uh, our fellowship and and to be good friends with them, really. That's ultimately what we brought was was good friends. So you end up with with deep relationships, right? Which I think right. always is the uh, the the one thing that removes most friction is having the relationships that will allow you to withstand the ask or whatever you need to get done. Is if you have a deep enough relationship, it's easier. Yeah, yeah. I loved uh, your show with Martin Lindstrom. He and I are cut from the same cloth. He's looking for small data. Heck, I'm looking even for even smaller data than that. I'm just trying to figure out how to let that person know that I'm not going to harm them. And then tell them a couple of stories about my kids. And then if I can, I want to cook for them. 
in like American style as best as I can replicate in their house. And I will tell you, nothing knocks down walls faster than people exchanging the, the breaking of the bread process, whichever direction it is. What would you make for people in, say, Bosnia? Uh, I can tell you, specifically in Afghanistan, my girlfriend at the time sent me a bunch of taco-type stuff, and we tried to do a Taco Tuesday, and I'm <laughs> cooking on uh, an earthen stove with whatever metal-shaped thing that they had to cook out of. You know, None of it made for <laughs> breaking tacos, and I was cooking on cardboard, so I'm trying to figure out. I've never cooked on cardboard in my life, you know. so I'm trying to get all these things together and then get it across the, uh, the road to the... Uh, the government center, and then I have to explain how to make tacos. And by the time all that happens, nothing's warm. But it didn't matter, you know. Like I'm like, oh man, this doesn't taste like it's supposed to taste. Nothing's warmed, and there's no microwave. And they all, they all loved the act of doing it. They ate it all wrong. They screwed it all up. It didn't taste right. But I was in their earthen kitchen cooking dinner for them, and that mattered more than anything else. So the the human connection, mm-hmm. and yeah, the, absolutely, the, this thing that we all share in common, and. You know, that, that's got to be one of the most different places in the world, but we're mostly more alike than we are different. That's true. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah. I look for those things first. And, you know, like people would tell me that, you know, you don't know Afghanistan. They're, they're not a nation. And I'm like, well, I know they all love their kids. Yeah. Nobody wants to get cancer, you know? And, and when I asked them, I, I would say, what, what ties you people together? And you know what they told me? They said, Wrestling. I said, all right, I'll bite. You got to show me your wrestling. And so they didn't do, you know, freestyle wrestling. They did more of like a, like a sumo type wrestling, but it was like they'd reach up and they'd grab each other's belts and they would pull each other around and try to throw the other person. So sort of like a judo sumo kind of style of fighting. And, um, it resonated and they were, and I said, well, who's the champion of this area? And they're like, oh, it's this one kid, you know? And, and so I wrote this report called the crippler of Div Khanna, you know? <laughs> And I took a picture of a kid, and they're like, is that the Crippler? And I'm like, I don't know if that's the Crippler. The point is, is that wrestling tied this diverse area together, and it mattered at the base level. And those people, this is the thing that's huge about culture, those people couldn't help it. They had to love wrestling because it was who they were. Yeah. Let's go into Afghanistan and talk about the time that you were there. What years were you there? Uh, 2011 to 2012 was the bulk of my time. So there was this government program called HUMANT, right? Uh, were you part of that? or do we, So HUMANT rub- is human intelligence. And then I worked, and I did that for sure, but my main job that we're talking about the culture was the human terrain system. Yeah. So human skills went into human terrain. They hired people that had human intelligence skills because, you know, we're going to go outside the wire and talk to people. Yep. So those two things go together. Tell me about uh, human first, and then I've I've actually written about this because I've talked to people in what I would call your community, even though your community is not that anymore because you interviewed Sly from Sly and the Family Stone, so I have no idea what that means your community is. But (laughs) let's talk about the human terrain system because I think this is a really interesting thing. If you're in business and if you lead an organization and you call on other organizations that are complex, I think this idea is really, really interesting. So can you give us an overview of what that is? So the idea was was to take cultural anthropologists into the field and educate the Army on – and I'm saying the Army. I really mean Department of Defense, but primarily we're talking about 
landowners. That's usually the army. So you're trying to create uh, an awareness for commanders and fill that social gap between the people and what we were doing and the impacts on them. You know, it's a square peg in a round hole thing, but we have big hammers, so we knock square pegs into round holes in the Army. So that was the concept, was just to create greater awareness on the things that we were going to do and the impacts on society, because if we're making life harder on these people without knowing it, well, we can do better than that, and, and that's what the program was meant to do. And so we're really, we're back to this fifth generation. So mm-hmm. winning militarily is no longer going to be enough. So now I need, I need to win politically, socially, and culturally with mm-hmm. respect for the religion that's there. And so now I have a very different and what you described as a complex problem set. So what's the human terrain system? What are you mapping? That's the hard question is once you get there, it's like, what's, what's the person's expertise once they get there? So I can talk from my point of view and what I tried to map. And the first thing I tried to map was how did our unit communicate internally? What did they say? So, you know, I would watch them talking about missions that they had had and they, they brief those. And if I didn't see my role accounted for in their missions, I knew there was a lot of work for me to do because they weren't aware of the social dynamic that was going on. And they started to make a lot of internal assumptions. And And this is true for any organization. You get what's what I call an accountability ladder where everybody's looking up at the person above them. You know, at the person above them on the ladder, it's usually you're looking at their butt. And if you look around and you might see one person above them, but they're all oriented in this upward direction. And you hear my John Boyd coming in, we're talking about orientation. And I needed to get them them to look more at the ground. You know, there's a quarter million people in this district. If we can't create value with the government, then it doesn't matter if we win militarily. So my job, what I mapped was what was our impact, the things that we were doing, how much were we accounting for the social, cultural, political, and religious fight? And then also, again, mirroring that back to the, uh, the local folks so that they would understand that, hey, we're doing things differently now. We're changing orientation towards you guys. And then the final piece was to get the command to relinquish the need to impose their will. Because that's what commanders do. That's their nature. So I've got to ask, I've got to ask them to write a big check and trust that the local elder, the local political leader is going to be the right guy to lead the way. And the right quote for that is that one of the elders, and he was a, he was three things in Afghanistan. He was a Mujahideen fighter who beat the Russians. He was the senior county level, I guess you could, for our sense, he was the senior district governor in the, uh, in the state. And he was also a mullah. But when the elders saw him, they called him mullah. They didn't call him Muj commander. They didn't call him governor. So that governor sits with me and he says, and this is after we built up trust. He says, there's only room for one sword in the scabbard. So that commander has to go, well, okay, then it can't be me because it doesn't do. And this is hard for commanders to do. This is hard for any leader to do to say, yeah, if I'm here to make your situation better, I've got to surrender some of this to you and let you be the sword. Maybe I'll be the scabbard, but I need to make sure I'm behind what your plan is. And so what I started mapping was, what was his plan? And I put it into a military slide format that they could understand. And now listen, it's not as simple as that. So I take the whole cross-translational thing, I take his plan, and there's so many great details in his plan, and I create an army slide, and then I purposely screw it up. I twist it 
so that it doesn't it doesn't match. And I give it back to him and I say, here's your slide. I'm going to take this to the army. And he instantly starts correcting the mistakes that I put in there. He said, no, 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 no. This priority goes here. This project can only go here. And he started going right back through the whole plan. So this indeed was not my plan. That's a critical thing. It was his plan. And then I took it to the army. And now, again, I've got to convince them because they're like, there's no way an Afghan did this. And I'm like, the slide? Yeah, of course he didn't do the slide. I did the slide. But this is his plan. And then they said, yeah, sure it is. And I said, well, you know, here's the deal. And sure enough, it was his, his plan. It was the first time I know of anybody doing this, getting the governor's plan that was all governor. And then the army saying, okay, let's get behind this. Let's, let's take these initiatives that we can help out with and only pick the ones where he asked for our help. You know, like if it's a agricultural initiative, do you need our help here, sir? No, I don't. So I'd put in there a waiting saying this is all Afghan related. We can track it, but we don't contribute to it. It's interesting, and this is super tactical, but to go in with the wrong proposal and say, this is what I think you want, and mm-hmm. then having the person say, no, that's not what I want. It goes in this order. Well, now, yes. now they own it, and now they've told you what they can say yes to. So, so now you can go into the commander with confidence to say, they can say yes to this. Well, why can they yeah. say yes to this? Because they wrote it. You know, they, they said this is what they want. And so rather than saying, I'm going to give them what I want to give them, we're going to, ha- so it's not my story, it's not your story, it's our story now, because we're going to help you get these things that you've prioritized. Give me an example where, because I know we want to impose our will, um, we want to do something that doesn't serve the the people that we're working with and what they want instead where, where we think that we should be giving them something and they really need something far, far different from what we're thinking about as, Man, as Americans. So. Sure, sure. I, I, I get what you're saying. There's so many examples of this. But I'm going to give you uh, – I'm going to give you the example of the dam. There was a check dam. Now, a check dam's job is just to slow or elevate water a little bit. It's not like the Hoover Dam. And – we were going to build this dam for the Afghans. There was a perfect canyon to build a dam. But because we're the army, we couldn't just build a check dam. We had to build this mighty dam. So we took what are called Hesco bastions. And Hesco bastion is just a, a metal basket with like a fiberglass blanket inside of it. And it will last indefinitely with rocks and things in it. So you can use it as like a, a, a hasty building material to build something like a dam or, or a, a checkpoint or a house or whatever. They're very practical. So we filled a bunch of Hescos with rocks and concrete and started to dam up this river and the plan was was to charge the irrigation ditches that ran the length of the valley that we were in and that was great and the afghans sort of loved that but there's a guy called the marab and that guy's job is to handle water issues for the people we had never engaged this guy and the times that and i asked specifically to the ag team that owned this project is have you engaged with the marab and they said yeah he doesn't know what he's doing uh, and they dismissed him. So the Marab and some of his guys came along and started hacking holes into the dam because they said, this thing doesn't belong here. It's causing problems. You're denying access to this. Mo-. And all these social things started coming out from this dam. So we came back and spent more money and made the dam bigger and better. We also forced the governor to go around village to village to gather people to help us put their dam together that they had never asked for in the middle of harvest. So we had forced the governor to go out door to door, trying to get people to work and put this dam together. And the whole time the the locals are saying, this is a bad idea. This dam won't last the first rainstorm. Uh, Sure enough, the thing's built on pea gravel. There's water coming underneath it fairly early on. So it's, it's already compromising. 
and <laughs> just getting worse by the day. So long story short was first rainstorm comes and it's gone the next day. Gone like and this is this is a significant piece of work. I'll have to show you a picture of it later on. But we had you could put a squad of people on top of it and they'd be over ten feet in the air. This was a dam. This thing was gigantic. And uh the next day literally nothing left. If you were to look at the slides that the Army had created for this dam, they would have told you this was the greatest thing of all time. It was creating unity in the community, and it was a huge win. All I had to do was talk to two people and know that that was absolutely false and assumptive behavior that we wasted a lot of money. To take this whole thing and make it even worse was USAID had a program for doing small-scale hydroelectric projects. It would have been perfect in this area. And when the dam failed, the governor looked at the people and said, I'm going to get the Americans to fix this. And he looked at me and I said, I'll help you however I can. So we started going up the American chain and USAID having the perfect opportunity to put electricity in a valley where there never was any ever in the history of man. They didn't do it. They let the governor figure it out on his own. And so he had no solution for the dam. And they went back to their old way of charging the uh, irrigation ditches. But it was an ultimate, ultimate failure. All they, all they wanted, I mean, really, all they want was water in the irrigation dishes, ditches, and they did that with, with small-scale motor water pumps. <laughs> and they already could do it. They didn't need a large dam. But here we thought they needed this thing, and they didn't. It caused social problems. They tried to hack it and destroy it. And all we did ultimately was undermine the power of the governor to do that. This is interesting because we go into companies with this big change initiative and we talk to leadership and leadership has a view of the problem and we have a view of the problem. But the ground truth that you get with with human intelligence when you go down and you talk to people is that you find out, first off, we don't need a dam. Second off, what you're building isn't going to work here because you don't understand the reality of our terrain. You don't understand the values that we have and that there's a better way to do it. And literally, you could you could have spent half the time and half the money and delivered eight times the result had you went and, and listened before you decided that you knew enough to, to solve the problem. And I think sometimes we get attached to what we want, and we don't spend enough time deep enough inside an organization, whatever that organization is. It can be the Afghan population in a valley or you know a Fortune 500 company, but there's greater intelligence where people are actually dealing with things on a daily basis a lot of times than there is high up. And I think that, you know, that military term of the ground troop, you know, the the general who's at command doesn't see what a soldier sees and where you're you're gonna get greater clarity on a problem the the lower you go. Let me ask you to tell tell another uh story about this and and uh, that, let's relate it to business and talk about the 50-year land dispute. Okay. W- w- walk us through that, and then l- let's relate this to how do we think about this as people who live – we don't live in Afghanistan, but the lessons are the same because they're human. Yeah, the lessons are the same. So there's uh, – obviously, Afghanistan has been unstable for a long time, and it's very difficult to create stability for anybody. You know, let's not lose sight of how challenging this is. So the norm is instability. So uh, there had been a land dispute. You know, one elder dies. Another elder claims something. The other elder fights. And so you have this fractured inter- and intra-family fight that rolls on for 50 years. And it goes hot and it goes cold, but it sits there and it can't be resolved. So here you have this potential win for the governor if he can figure out how to bring the parties together. Keep in mind, the Taliban, who are from this area, weren't able to accomplish this because they weren't able to gather the elders that could reach this decision. Because this is going to be a community decision, which is how the Afghans make a lot of their decisions. So the elder 
we are able to get out of his way and he starts to take initiative and he starts to communicate independently with the different valleys and regions saying, hey, here are the things that I'm trying to do. Come in, come see me. And I started noticing that elders from further away were coming in with different messages, less complaints and more problems. And there's a difference there. So what happens is, is this dispute arises and they say, hey, we'd love to get this off our backs. We think now is the time, you know, the right elders have died. They're out of the way. We think we're ready to do this. So they bring all these elders in and over the course of several days and a lot of, of goat curry, these guys started to hash out what was going to be what and who was going to get what. One of the things, too, and this is part of that fifth element, that by, with, and through religion, that whole time, there were, there were not just the governor who's a mullah, but there were other mullahs there, too, to make this Islamic legitimate in, in, the, uh, in the agreement. So I'm able to, because of my level of trust with the governor, because I'm not bringing Pete solutions as much as I can avoid it, I'm just listening and learning and watching and trying to illustrate more than anything else, I get invited to go and I sit there and I just watch and I just observe. My translator just whispers into my ear. And I don't even understand what I see at first. That's how different their decision-making was. And the next thing I know, everybody's putting their thumb on this paper and they're all agreeing. And the, uh, the agreement is done. And we had just witnessed this incredible thing that nobody else had been able to do. And this governor, because he was left alone to gather elders, was able to, to accomplish this monumental thing, but it was all through human interaction and the building of trust. My trust that I was able to build with him and my trust that I could build with the commander to get out of his way to allow him to build trust with his elders and build a community that had not been there for decades. By allowing them to develop the relationship and by the commander, our commander, I'm, a, I'm mm-hmm. American, so our commander, to let their mullah get the win that he needs and to get the access to say, I can bring these people in, I can start this. We freed him up to have the ability to, to generate a deal where right. imp- imposing the deal would have done nothing beneficial for anybody. Yeah, we could have certainly made those elders show up under the power of the military and said, you're going to solve this thing. We didn't even know it existed. The, when I wrote the report, the army didn't even know what it meant or what to do with it. I'm like, you don't have to do anything. This is a win, and the win is so foreign to them because it's so different. It's so tangential to their culture. I'm like, look, you have to understand, you have a governor that gathered elders, and they made a community decision, and mullahs were present. This is enormous to have people from this far, because there were faces that I had not seen in this meeting. What, and then why they, do you, they started saying, Why do you think from. they showed up for this? Because there wasn't going to be Americans there. That was a big thing. And I, I said, I would love to record it, but if I need to not be there to make sure it happens. And he's like, No, you can be there. You and your interpreter, maybe some with the camera, but that's it. Don't bring any food, don't do anything else. Well, we suck at that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're always trying to be at the party and, and be the bell of the ball. But that's why they showed up, was that he was able to leverage his status as a governor for sure, but more importantly, his status as a mullah, and say, this is right by Islam to get this thing off of your guys' backs. We need to make progress on this, and this is one thing that we all can do ourselves. How did you end up being not American enough that as an American you're allowed in the room? When I go to places, uh, I have, I'm authorized to wear a uniform, but I'm not in the Army, so I don't have to. So I typically don't for both sides' benefit. I want the American soldiers to see me as Pete, 
that's my metric. When they start calling me Pete, hey, Pete, Pete, come here, answer this question for me. Now I know I've got the influence that I need. On the other side, I want the Afghans to see me as this wise elder. You know, I grow a beard, but I don't grow their beard. I grow my beard. And uh, I never ask questions based on threat. I always ask questions based upon them and their opinion. And I draw those things out. So I become known in the Valley as, as an educated man who cares about Islam and they, they respect my respect for them. And when I do cultural things, this is this is important too, Anthony. Let me, do, let, me not, you yeah. know, let me not let you go past that point. Okay. First off, we want to talk about your beard because you must have been painting your house because you got some white paint on uh, no, on no, part of your I, beard. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely a little. There's a little white. Um, the, this go back to this talk about the respect, yeah, for, for them and for their culture because I think that this this point. When you're in another culture, you're in another organization where there's already values and cultures and, and, and those things established, you know, it can, it can look foreign and it can feel foreign and it can feel wrong. And we can judge it through our own cultural lens to say that's not the right way, but that's the culture. And I think that's true as you go from business to business. I know people in a small entrepreneurial business, you drop them into big business and they think the culture is way too bureaucratic. There's no mm -hmm. entrepreneurship here. I got no freedom. And then you take a person from a big company and you drop them in a small company and they're like, where's the rules? I mean, what, yeah. what are we doing? Everybody's wild here. So what, how do you demonstrate that respect? What, what is it that allows you to get that outcome? Yeah, and you're right about that. When I've done work with companies, um, I often say like HR is a tribe, sales is a tribe. There's tribes internally, and you're right. When we get immersed into these different cross-cultural environments, you do have what a cultural shock, right? So you'll lose your bearing as to what's right and what's wrong. We do this all the time with the military. I see it all the time where you come in and it's like, wow, everything here is different. And you're not able to see the differences that work for you that you can leverage. You're also not able to see the commonality that you can leverage. So we'd start to lose our point of, of respect because, uh, you know, we'll show up unannounced for meetings. We would never do that normally. I've heard military people say, and with the best intent ever, I've heard them say, I don't care what the governor wants to do. My boss wants to do this. That is just the essence of disrespectful. So I take those things out and, and, but the lessons I've learned, I've watched from watching us make these ham-handed mistakes and said, I don't have to get the culture. I don't have to even, and I don't want people to mimic the culture. Don't, don't try to, and I always say this, you can't out Iraq and Iraqi. You can't out IBM and IBM person. Don't try to. Use your lack of cultural knowledge there to your advantage and say, I don't understand why you guys all wear vests here in Afghanistan, but dang, I would love to learn why. And maybe you don't ever get the answer to that question, but it's just by simply asking. And what that does is you get to listen, you get to ask questions and poke around and draw that person out. And the other thing is, is you get to share some of your stories that are common with them. Because as much as you have to figure them out, you're trying to help them figure you out. And so you just slowly, and it's delicate work. In, in this kind of environment where instability is the norm, no one's supposed to trust me. So it's better to be slow and not risk anything and slowly draw them out, bring out their emotion, 
tie one of my common stories into theirs, and I call that fence posting, where you're building the same fence together, and all of a sudden you realize, oh my gosh, you're a warrior, I'm a warrior. You're a scholar, I'm a scholar. And they have all these commonalities. That's where the respect comes in, because I don't come in and try to say 15 phrases in, in, in Pashtu and act like I know how to speak it. I let my interpreter guide me with a lot of those things. I leverage the heck. And, and listen, business and military are bad at leveraging the advantage of a great interpreter. I defy anybody to talk intelligently and show me the book where they say, this is how you win with interpreters. It's just that we look at them as a tool, and that's a shame because these guys can guide you. They represent half of you and your message and half of your partner's message. So those are the things that I do to build respect is I respect my interpreter, and I use the heck out of them, and I make them valuable. I'll leave room for my partner to be smart. I'll ask questions, and I'll tell my interpreters all the time, I'm going to ask questions that are obvious that you know I know the answers to. I want you to ask those questions because I'm trying just to get little small answers out of them where they can educate me. We always want to be the smartest person in the room. This is why State Department struggles. They can't make mistakes. So I'll say things like, isn't it right in Islam that you guys can actually eat pork on Sundays or whatever it's going to be? And it won't be that question. It'll be something like that. And they'll say, no, of, of course we don't eat pork. We never eat pork. You know, and they'll, now they're telling me with passion about their religion. And I, you know, I'm just nodding my head and saying, okay, okay, now I get because, it. You know, and I let them teach me. You're, yeah, you're opening to being taught. Yes. So that openness to being taught means that you're interested. And if you come in and you want to show off how much you know, Right. Then, then you're not leaving room for that. That, that yes. I think, is a very, very human thing. There's a couple of things you said. One, you go slow. And I think what, one of the things I write about all the time is that in human relationships, slow is fast and fast is slow. So yes. the faster you try to go, the more you're slowing things down because you're creating all this friction by not taking the time to develop that relationship and trust. The second thing that you said that I want to ask you about is um, why, why the vest? I never found out. You never, never found, found out. out. Did you it was try? one of those things where I had to let it go because it was it was a. Uh, I was putting me into the question too much. I realized, and I said, "I've got to get away from this question." Yeah. Because now it's coloring what I do, and it wasn't helping. Yeah, you were too interested. Yes, exactly. What do you think? If you could just wrap this up in a couple lessons, if if you're talking to a person in business. And there's a lot of businesses now. I mean, the world, globalization is a very real force. We have people that are working all around the world. We have people from all over the world working here. What what would be a couple of the keys that you would say from somebody who spent a lot of time as a cultural anthropologist in a real-life situation? Um, wh- what would you say the rule sets are if you were just to share a few things that people could benefit from? And one of the lenses I give every commander is this. I say, how would that work here? So like we go out and we enroll all military age males into a biometric database. So that means there's an iris scan, a facial facial recognition picture taken, and fingerprints. If we went to rural Ohio and started enrolling every military age male, how does that go? It goes poorly. Not very well. Right, right. So instead of just doing that as a function of what the military has to do, and I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying leverage that to your your advantage. So grab those people and, and say, or have their elder or their governor say, this is important for our safety and security. We want everybody to know who the Taliban are, so everybody's going to get enrolled. Now, you may have a conversation starter that's very hostile and angry, and you're still going to enroll them anyhow, but now you're talking, whereas before you were just forcing something on them. That type of attitude, and you have to find your own systems for that within what you do, but if you use your own force, your own culture, 
as a hammer to hammer your way through a problem, then you're going to struggle. I have, I have a, a guy that I know that works in northern India on a fairly regular basis, and he was telling me how he didn't need my help. And I said, you know, that might be true. The next sentence out of his mouth was, is I have an Indian partner, and he never do, does what I tell him to do. <laughs> like, well, there you go. I, I can help you with that. I can tell you right now what's going on. You've got a decision-making process. He's got one. He's got a set of goals. You've got them. And they're not totally aligned. Matter of fact, right now, you're not collaborative at all. And when you're not, you're going to get several values that you don't like. So if you're in a cross-cultural, cross-international, cross-language, cross-religion situation, and you get passive-aggressive behavior, if you get what appears to be incompetence, it's a big one. If you see incompetence, that's a, that's a red flag to you that you've missed something. Yeah. And it's very – people make e- mistakes. Even on your own team, right? Yes, <laughs> yes. You are missing that person's culture because even though you and I, we can think, oh, we have the same culture. You're from the Midwest. I'm from the Midwest. There's a lot of things that we do a lot differently. You we're, know? we're just a lot nicer than you, and uh, you guys are a lot more laid back. Yeah, that's probably true. It's hard to get you, you to do anything. You're too slow. Yeah, exactly. Slow. We're going to take it easy. You're um, on the beach. Uh, oh, I love the beach. Well, you know, we got more sun. We got, we got less things. We don't worry about the weather. How about that? That's, that's a legitimate nice. California thing. We don't worry about it. You know, you guys are going to watch the weather channel and everything. Those are significant differences if you ignore them. And the thing I say about culture, and this will probably get wrap this up pretty well is culture is like gravity. It's everywhere. It's omnipresent. If you don't account for it until your keys fall down onto the ground or until something important goes in the drain or your, or your phone finds its way into the toilet, all of a sudden gravity has damaged your life in a significant way. Well, culture is the same thing. You don't account for it. It's being accounted for. You can't always create it the way you want to, but it is changing things. Even in the United States, we're five countries. I mean, the the New England states and New York, mm-hmm. it's a very different place than the South, which is a very sure. different place than the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the West and California. They're, they're all very, very different places with very different sort of cultural norms. And uh, I think it's important that we, we think about that. Let's talk about what you're doing now. So I know that you are speaking, right? right? You're consulting, and, and training as well. Yeah, you, so you're training people in this this cultural anthropological approach, and not just for different countries and different cultures, but even in the United States for businesses yeah. who who need to think through how do we go into other uh, organizations or cultures and make change. Sure, sure. Like I, I uh, uh, talked to a company; they wanted to start offshoring some stuff to the Philippines. And uh, they realized they didn't have any in-house capacity to go to the Philippines and figure out what they were seeing. Yeah, they'll send someone on a tour, but that's just tourism. You know, to really change the impact and get to make those Filipinos part of their family, part of their team, which was part of their company ethos and culture, you have to have someone like me that can come along. And I can be the CEO on the ground without being that person. I don't have their influence but I do have the truth. That's all I owe my client is the truth. So I'm able to go out and look at things. And it doesn't have to be in the Philippines. It can be internally. It can be, uh, you know, you look at the, the cross, um, the grass is always greener. Those guys don't work hard. All these things that we have that indicate a, a, a cross of cultural purposes, I can go out and talk with a company and highlight these things, point out these negative outcomes that happen like passive aggressive behavior, incompetence, these results that we see. And I can say, this is a problem of culture. 
I'll give you an example. I worked at CDW uh, in between some of my military time, and they had a thing called inclusion training. And I already, it already smelled bad going in, right? And so I, I, I waste a day off the phones as a sales guy, which I hate. And they never said, thank you. We know you're not on the phones. You know, they never said, don't worry about your goal for the day. They just said, go in here and do this. And I got out of it as many times as I could. I kept putting it off. There was right there as a sign, right? Passive aggressive behavior. I did not want to do this. So I get in there and they proceeded for the next eight hours that I could have been on the phone. They proceeded to tell me that it was my fault that I wasn't engaged. I needed to be more part of the company. And I came out of that thing further disengaged from my company, knowing that they had no whether this is true or not, I came out knowing there was no future for me at this company that I wanted to get out of there because they didn't care about me. They just told me so for eight hours. Yeah. And and you weren't the only one that went through the training. Right. It was everybody. Yeah. Everybody did. <clears throat> okay. So that's that's what I try to do is go back and and eliminate some of that stuff. If you're going to do training, let's make it valuable. If you're going to send people overseas, let me help you. Uh, it's not about the wrong hand gesture. It's okay to make the wrong hand gesture. You're American. You know, it's okay. You can use that to your advantage. If someone can't tell you how to how to establish and measure rapport, if they can't tell you how to establish and measure trust, uh, then uh, someone like myself can help you. I, I can bring those tools. I, I like to say I've hacked culture. I know the things that are important and the things that aren't important. So when I go out, I speak about my experiences, a thousand missions outside the wires, a thousand stories. When I do training, it's based on those cultural things, right? This is how training is impacting you. And we have a great time doing it. It's all scenario and situational based because, yeah, sure, I can lecture, but what's the fun in that? Let's get yeah. you guys and get your hands dirty. It's better. The lightning round. What book are you reading right now? Does it count that if I'm writing a book instead of reading a book today? Uh, well, it definitely counts that you're writing it. We'll talk about that next, but what are you reading? Uh, I'm reading a book uh, by Rob Nyer. It's, it's about his uh, time in Boston. It's, just a, it's a junk baseball kind of book. I need something that's not going to overwhelm my brain so it's one of rob nyer's books about fenway park that's cool that's always cool stuff so it's historical mm -hmm. uh it's just he it was it's more um like a year autobiographical year you know okay spent a year over there wrote a book yeah okay that's cool what's the most important book you've ever read and why I think it's Benedicte Grima wrote a book about her 12 years uh, doing an ethnography in Pashtunistan. So she went out and lived as a Pashtun woman, starting out as, as a Western woman, you know, maybe wearing a scarf. And then, you know, as she grew deeper into the culture, she was more required to adhere to the tenets of Islam. And she's not Islamic, you know, but the tenets of Pashtun, she's not Pashtun, you know, she brought her daughter in and everything. And uh, it speaks to a lot of what I have developed in terms of understanding other cultures. And, and uh, like I said, we can't presume that, I just wrote a paper on empowering females in conflict zones, and it's very, very difficult to do. We don't have her knowledge, and we're going to go out to Pashtunistan and change Pashtun women. How can we presume to change a condition of somebody that we don't even know what their condition is? This is the thing about you four GW guys. I mean, everybody's reading the deepest stuff. And so yeah. when I look on, on the Facebook group and everybody's putting up what they're reading, I'm like, man, this yeah. is, he is heavy reading. <laughs> That's why I have to read Rob Nyer's great work because he <laughs> takes me and puts me in a baseball world. And allows my brain to shut off. So you get to leave that one for a little while. Yeah. Who personally has had the biggest influence on your thinking? Honestly, it's it's the commanders and it's the elders, you know, and their amalgamation. Their their, their impact is 
is also it's indelible but i couldn't say one person because the lessons that i get from each of them is is critical as the next one so it's it's the elders and the commanders as they've guided me with their words the sword and the scabbard how i can't replace that that's yeah. so good you know that's that's real life i mean that that was organic it came up and the lesson was strong enough that it stuck right exactly. and you've got yeah you know what and i i have that question i get asked all the time like what's that one event you know, that one thing. And I'm like, you know, it, it's thousands of little things sure. that end sure. up making you what you are and give you the beliefs and the values. It's not the one thing. It's lots. It's a good answer. We made we made a mistake one time. This is, it goes right to this thing where we had uh, – there's a thing called the Stesiphon Arch, and it's this giant social cultural magnet. It draws Iranians, Iraqis, Western people, everything, universities. It's this beautiful UNESCO, should be UNESCO heritage site that's just derelict off on the uh, outskirts of Baghdad. And so you know, we wanted to try to put some attention into it, and the State Department doesn't care about it. So we go to the local governor, and we're like, we would like to put some money and effort into making this uh, arch an important thing in the area – and, uh, you know, this is our pitch and we're very fancy and we're Americans and some of us even smoke pipes. Well, he's like, oh, I'm glad you asked. Here, look, here's my glossies. Here's my – and he had a whole media campaign planned with artistic renderings of what was going to be there. And we were like, why did we just do these eight hours of work? All we had to do is come in with an open slate and say, what do we do about this arch? And he was, re- he was waiting, waiting for us to ask. That's awesome. You know, well, yeah, then we dropped the ball and never went back and did anything with it, by the way. Just, just so you know, thing would have stabilized the whole region. What's the most important lesson you've learned in life up till now? Perspective matters. You know, what, what I want the truth to be is, is nice, but if I can at least understand, I've got to agree with it, but if I can understand the other person's perspective, there's a common ground in there that's, that's really palatable for the both of us. It's a good lesson. Yeah. If you weren't doing what you do now, if you weren't speaking and consulting and training, and if you weren't up to whatever other shenanigans you guys were on, <laughs> up to at the Break It Down show, what would you be doing? I'd be doing something creative for sure. You know, um, we've gotten to know a number of people in the uh, in the Hollywood world, and uh, I am drawn to what they do for sure. That creative yeah. process no, I, speaks to me. It's an expression of uh, of our soul, I think. Sure. Yeah, John and I are storytellers, so why wouldn't we go down there and tell stories? That's right. What do you hope to be remembered for? That I was a good dad. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I mean, just thinking about that makes me just feel a little emotional. I love my daughter. I love who she's become. And uh, I love that I get to step back and let her be her, you know. And uh, I just, she keeps me alive. She keeps me happy. She keeps me going forward. I love that she doesn't look like you. (laughs) <laughs> you ought to see when we do the face switch stuff. It's hilarious. She looks like a younger me, but uh, but you're right. She doesn't look like me though. <laughs> no, she's. A, I've seen her picture. She's a lot better looking than you. Yes, yes. She's fortunate. <laughs> so now let's talk about something completely different for just one minute. So all of this, and then the break it down show. Man, I am so proud of the break it down show. Of all the things I've done in my life, besides getting my daughter to be a normal, active, you know proto-adult, the Break It Down show is the coolest thing. And, uh, you know, 
as I look back, I realize I'm using the same tools. So I get people that are my co-host John Leon Guerrero, who works with me also. We get people that are way outside of our personal personal circle, people that don't have to say yes to us. People like Sly Stone, uh, Jay Moore is a friend of mine now. Not just someone's been on the show, but we exchange texts. I don't know Jay Moore a year ago, but now he's my friend. So it's the same tools, but the stories are incredible. To hear these people tell these things that happen, I just, it's such a neat thing. And there's so many lives where our guests aren't going to write the book a lot of times. And so this is their one shot to write the book, and it goes up on the web and it lives forever. We were fortunate to get a guy named Mick Gillette, who a lot of you haven't heard of, but he is in the music world one of the giants. His genius is on par with Prince. Everybody who plays a horn, he was he was the uh, the founder uh, one of the founders in the Tower of Power band, and he was the horn player, and he was one of those guys with Mozart level talent on the horn. Anybody in the horn business is like, oh, I'm good, but Mick, wow, and they're moved. I'm telling you right now, Anthony, to tears when they talk about this guy and what he meant to them, and how either they would have loved to have met him or met him, and and we were fortunate to get one really good show with him, and we. Or unfortunate to not get the rest because that guy was a lexicon. He played with the Beach Boys, with the Rolling Stones. You said any person from his era, he's like, yeah, I played with him. Here's the story. And he had one. So that's what the Break It Down show does. It takes people, it takes their stories, and it puts it on your doorstep. And you may not realize you even care about Christy Michelini and her interior design. But as you hear her talk about how she makes people's lives better, I defy anybody not to be fascinated by what she does. So there's 80 plus, 100, over 100 hours of programming up on the thing, www.breakitdownshow.com. And there are just so many, so many great shows. You should have a guy named Devone Bogan on your show if you can ever get him. That guy is world-class. He took the city of Richmond in California, which had an inordin- a crazy high murder rate, and he said, give me the worst people in this town that are going to kill people, and I'm going to build a family around them, and then I'm going to keep doing it every year over and over again until the murder rate plummeted there because he took those people, and he did exactly what you and I talked about. He built families around these people. He understood their culture. He got the city to hire gun felon, gun gun criminal felons as his main go-to guys to go out into the streets and find gang members and say, hey man, we care about you. Let's help you out. So that's what the Break It Down show is. Just a bunch of really good life stories. It's out there for anybody who wants it. Breakitdownshow.com. Well, we're going to point to them in the show notes and PeteAturner.com to find you. Thanks so yeah. much for being here. No, no problem. My pleasure. I really, really enjoyed it. You do a great job. I love what you do. We'll do it again soon. For my money, this interview is an onion. There is just layer after layer after layer, and you could keep peeling away at this, and I could keep offering insight to all kinds of things that Pete said. I'm going to make a recommendation here that I rarely make. Go back and listen to this again and start thinking through situations where the skill set and the mindset that Pete talks about would be useful because there's so much in here that's worth thinking about and worth knowing. It's worth another listen. He is Pete Turner. You can find him at PeteAturner.com. He's a speaker, he's an author, and he's a consultant to businesses and sometimes to the military about all things cultural. We also talked about Pete's show, The Break It Down Show. That's his podcast, and it is nothing like 
anything that we talked about today because he has guests like Sly from Sly and the Family Stone, which is a very difficult episode to produce because Sly is so reclusive, but Pete found a way to get close enough to get that interview. So go visit them at breakitdownshow.com. You'll also find that in the show notes. So go check out the links and visit Pete online. I am your host, Anthony Anarino. This is the In the Arena podcast. You can find me at thesalesblog.com. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino. No matter where you go, no matter where you find me, do go to thesalesblog.com forward slash newsletter and sign up for my Sunday newsletter, which is received by about 91,000 people each week, where I share my best insights about sales, about leadership, about management, and about success. You'll have it in your inbox on Sunday morning so you can take action as you plan your week and you get ready to dive into my favorite day, Monday, when we get back to the hustle. Thanks for being here. Do share this with a friend. Do give us a review on iTunes. Thanks so much. And we will see you next time right here in the arena.